From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, as you listen to this, I hope you are doing what I'm imagining, and that's getting ready to head into a wonderful, warm, but not too hot, summer holiday and have great plans lined up ahead of you. The first half of season five has just blown by, and it's hard to believe that we're already in August, which if you've been with us the past few years, you know that means we'll be taking a nice long summer break of our own during the month of August. So no season five episodes until September, but never fear. We will bring you a special bonus episode next week to cover some of the news and goings on from around the field. And we might even have a special guest that stops by the digital studio. Speaking of special guests, let's talk about this week's guest. This week's guest hardly needs any introduction. She is the founder of the master's program in arbitration at Stockholm University, is an arbitrator and one of the most renowned academics in the international disputes practice. A fellow American who has set up shop in Europe for a number of years and recently appointed president of the Vismut. I'm speaking, of course, of Professor Patricia Shaughnessy. Patricia was kind enough to meet with us while I was in Stockholm earlier this summer, and we had a great conversation about making your way in international arbitration, the state of practice in terms of international disputes, and where the practice is going. And we even had some fun asides in there, too. So, without further delay, sit back. Put on some sunblock to enjoy the summer sun and enjoy my conversation with Patricia Shaughnessy. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. With me, listeners, I have a guest who needs very little introduction, even though we will have just given one in the show opening notes. I have with me, Miss... Patricia Shaughnessy. That's right. Patricia, thanks for being here today, and we are so excited to have you on the show. We've been trying to get you on for a little, at least a season, maybe two seasons by this point, so thank you for coming by. It's a pleasure, and I'm glad that you came by. <laughs> That's right, and um, and I may not have said it in the, in the opening notes, but um, I, we're doing this live on location just outside, or maybe this is Stockholm proper in Sweden. So um, thanks for having us here, uh, Patricia, and we look forward to chatting with you today. So, I'm going to start the interview off the question with the question we ask all of our guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Wow, that is a tough question. Um, I'm Patricia Shaughnessy, as said, and I am living in Sweden. And I've been very Swedified during the past 30 years. But as anyone could probably pick up from my accent, I'm actually an American. And I came to Sweden about 30 years ago from... Um, and working for many years, having practiced law for 10 years in Hawaii. 
and I took a ski vacation to Switzerland, and I met my husband 30 years ago. And since then, living in Stockholm. Um, I don't know if that says who I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. No, but that's a good start. Um, so um, from Hawaii now to, 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 Swi- uh, to Sweden, tell us how that happened. How did you go from one side of the globe to the other? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a romantic story, I guess. <laughs> I took a vacation, my first ski vacation to, to Europe, and I was traveling with a friend, and we flew um, through Chicago into Zurich and got on a train. And at a train station in Kerr, we met my husband and his two friends he was traveling with, and it just turned out we were going to the same ski resort and to the same hotel. My husband was a partner at uh, Linkletters, M&A. As I said, I've been practicing law for 10 years. My husband was in his upper 30s. I was in my lower 30s, and neither of us had ever been married. And we were absolutely uninterested in having any kind of uh, vacation romance. And our friends were a little more interested. We weren't. And by the end of that week, we were both madly in love. Oh, wow. Wow. So plot twist, basically. <laughs> a plot twist. And, um, of course, my family thought I was crazy to give up after having practiced for 10 years and a good practice and give up Hawaii and move to the other side of the world. But um, I, I guess I knew it was right. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, okay, well, let, let's take some steps back first. So you said you've been practicing law for 10 years. Um, how did you know you wanted to practice? I mean, how did that start? Um, you know, today's all the young people, they're so bright and they have these amazing resumes, people like you, Chris. And I get the sense that they're really intentional. And I have to say that my career has been anything but intentional. (laughs) I have just kind of had opportunities come my way, things that have interested me, that have driven me to what I'm doing. And um, so it was with the study of law. Um, I, I came from a background, a family where I was the first of, of my generation of cousins and things and to um, to go to college and graduate from college. And I kind of slid into law school. That's another story. But I really became passionately interested. I really love studying law. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, it sounds like it wasn't it's not like there was like an eight-year-old Patricia Shaughnessy saying, I'm going to go be an international arbitration lawyer. Not even an 18-year-old. <laughs> but it, um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful career. I really found something that interests me. In. Okay. And so then, um, so we've gotten you to law school then. What was the pivot or when was your exposure to international law and international arbitration that started you down this path? I'm not quite sure. Um, I, can, I can say, because this kind of resonates a bit, I think, with your own story, that when I was in law school, perhaps because coming from Hawaii, where there are many, uh, you know, particularly Asians and others, that I, I became very interested in wanting to uh, go back to practice in Hawaii and to perhaps be doing more work with Asian clientele and such. So I actually wanted to apply to a program that they had at the University of Washington at the time, where you did an LLM and you got teamed up with a Bengoshi, which is a, 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 a young lawyer from Japan. Right. So I had applied for that at the time in law school. I worked most of the time full-time at the Attorney General's office with antitrust consumer protection to help buy my way through. So the idea of going to Seattle and being in that program 
attracted me. But they weren't accepting any women. They said that no Bengoshi would want to be partnered with a woman. Wow, wow no women. Like, not a couple, not two, three, no, no women. Yeah, when I went to law school, that was a long time ago. I think we were about 300 law students, and I think we were like maybe 10 women. Wow. But so there was no need to apply for that. So it's already there. I was interested, and I ended up working in Hawaii with um, a a firm that was um, a mixed firm. And then um, I was went the last five years. I worked in Honolulu with a law firm, Fong Miho Okano and Wong, that was started by Hiram Fong, the first U.S. senator of Asian descent. He was a senator for over forty years, and. and Judge Choi, who was the first Asian judge of um, the, of Asian descent on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and they had started the firm. And I was the first non-Asian working in the firm oh, wow. and the first woman lawyer working in the firm. So I, we had many clients that came from Malaysia, Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, etc. So already then I had this, this interest, a strong interest in other cultures, meeting people from other backgrounds, working in a more dynamic environment. Wow. Okay. So that that's that is really interesting. Breaking all kind of barriers, you know, with this firm that was already groundbreaking in its own right. Um and then so it sounds like somewhere in that line of experience is where you got introduced to arbitration. Is that right? Yeah, so um believe it or not, <laughs> little old Hawaii was one of the early starters. So in the mid eighties, I think it was uh, Illinois and Hawaii were the first two to start court annexed mandatory arbitration mediation programs. Okay. And we had a very active member in our community from the American Arbitration Association that was promoting arbitration and working on legislative reform. So already in the mid-80s, I became a um, certified arbitrator in the mandatory arbitration program. So I, and it was um, particularly, as you know from your own experiences with Asian clients, Japanese clientele and such, they really found American litigation and American discovery extremely um, invasive and unfamiliar and unpleasant. Yeah, they still might. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think they've gotten pretty good at it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think they're really, I think they're they're doing quite well in that in that space. But um, wait, so I got interested in arbitration already in the mid '80s. Okay, so and then so you got that experience with arbitration, and um, from there, you know we did, we heard at the beginning of the story um, what, what took you to 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 Sweden. How was it that when you got to Sweden, and this is sort of you know just um, for those of you that for somehow don't know this backstory, uh, Patricia started a little LLM program in Stockholm that you may have heard of. Um, how did that come to be? That's a really interesting story. Well, I finished my, I decided after coming to Sweden to uh, do a master's degree in study. And then I went on and did a PhD, which worked well, um, because my husband and I decided that we wanted to have a family. And so, as I said, doing PhD studies was a great job for raising two children. But the two children were not great for the PhD studies. And of course, being married to a busy, uh, big firm lawyer, um, it was convenient to be 
having a more flexible schedule. But I'm really happy I did that, and I got to be teaching a lot, and I found I really loved. I can go back and say already back in Hawaii I taught as an adjunct professor at the University of Hawaii Law School teaching appellate advocacy. So I knew I liked teaching, and I loved mooding activities, and I loved educating students through practical um, integrated activities along with, you know, the the theory. Sure. And so so we've got, I think, the, the foundations of the major planks there um, that have made up the maybe the, the long part of line share of your career. Um, tell us a little bit about, I guess, the in-between to now, I guess, the more modern era. What, what have you been doing most recently? Oh, I'm living a great life. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. It, which I look. I, I'm looking at the view from her from her home, listener. So I, I can. It definitely appears that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, um, in uh, one year ago, then I retired from my position. A couple years ago, I was happy to pass on the LLM program, which is celebrating 20 years, to one of my former students, Karina Baltag, and to a, a, another co-director, Daria, and her. So I've been. Um, not running the LLM, which was very administratively intense, and doing other teaching. But from June, I um, now no longer have a full-time position. I have a renewable contract to work at a very much reduced, like I work about 10 or 15% as kind of a senior um, advisor, doing PhD supervision, helping with course development, doing some teaching and such. And um, I love that because I still have my office, I have my colleagues, I'm part of the academic organization, Um, I have activities with students who inspire me, so it's great, but I am very free to do a lot of other things. So I've been sitting more as an arbitrator, doing more expert opinions, and doing one of the things which um, I really, really find meaningful, and that's engaged in legal development projects. And working with, um, I really believe in improving commercial dispute resolution and improving um, investment environments, contribute to the rule of law. And I really believe that that lends or helps to facilitate prosperity and peace in the world. Well, right, and um, and I think you you used a term there that uh, maybe people that are, that also work directly with them might be familiar with legal development. But um, would you set maybe set the boundaries or explain it, define it a little bit more for the listeners at home? Um, well, legal development actually has been booming since the '90s, so that there's a great uh, number of donors. Asian Development Bank, sure. Bank USAID, EU, um, a, a lot of donors, um, World Bank. IFC that put a lot of uh, funding into helping to develop commercial law generally and commercial dispute resolution because they see that as a way to help improve the rule of law, transparency, performance. It's also good to, as a component in working against corruption and against bribery and those kinds of issues. So it's really considered to be part of the toolbox. So the areas that I tend to work in is, of course, arbitration, promotion, and development. But it also can expand into court performance and building capacity and in mediation. I think I'm probably singing to your choir. Yeah. That <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, yes. 
Yeah, that, yeah. We, we, need, we need to use dispute resolution as a way to mitigate risks, both for the local business community and to encourage small and medium businesses to cross borders because that's where we're going to see economic growth and even for the big actors. Well, right. And, you know, that that's a really interesting point, um, Patricia. You know, I, I gave a, a talk recently, and anyone that's heard me speak recently, over the last couple of years especially, knows that I've been beating this drum about businesses don't have disputes for the sake of having disputes. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that might sound pretty obvious, but sometimes I think council can lose sight of that. Um, and that, you know, uh, will sometimes continue a matter going forward um, for the sake of every reason but the, the business interest, the commercial interest. And I mean, I think... Um, the more we as the legal community get away from those principles of resolving the underlying business dispute, um, the less happy we as clients are with it. Yeah, and I think I have this um, this crazy metaphor that I use when it comes to teaching, but I think it also applies to practice, and I call it the hand in the glove. And the idea that the glove is the law, and the glove needs to fit the hand because the glove doesn't really have very much intrinsic value if you don't have a hand to put in it. And it needs to fit the hand. And the hand are the users. They are what we're trying to achieve, the clients and such. And I think when we're educating students, when we're developing theories, when we're developing tools, when we're working with clients, we need to always have in mind they have commercial objectives. And they see our contributions in the law as needing to sync with achieving those commercial objectives. And that doesn't mean it's all about the profit. You know, working for a big company, that today it's not only the shareholders, but also the stakeholders. That's right. They're also hand in hand. And so that one needs to be a good citizen. One needs to be um, doing things well for the right reasons. And that should lead to shareholder value. Well, that's right. And it's really interesting because you are seeing this sort of bigger shift, especially, you know, you could arguably had some of these things going on since the the early 90s, but especially more recently, these ESG sorts of things that, you know, the sole sole objective of a for-profit entity is not necessarily only seeking maximized shareholder value, that there are these sort of global citizen types of obligations that companies are feeling themselves availed to and um, that we have to make sure that we're not disregarding in the ways that we do business or resolving disputes. Yeah, and it's good business, and it will make you more profitable, just like diversity will also make you, that's an important component of the ESG, that employees will be happier, shareholders will be happier, and you'll attract more shareholders. You will have a community role that ends up helping to promote your brand and your profile. I mean, it all works together together. So it's not just a matter of profit or nothing. Well, that's right. That's right. And, um, you know, so I think that that is, a, is a one great point. Another thing that comes to mind, uh, Patricia, is I'd be curious to know what you think about maybe something in the, the world of dispute resolution or arbitration that you wished people talked about more, that you think maybe kind of gets, you know, left off the, the, the list when we set up the conferences or doesn't come to the fore, we're having conversations amongst ourselves. What, is there anything that comes to mind for you that uh, maybe you wish uh, practitioners in the field to talked about more? Well, I think that they are starting to talk about these things because the things which have been on my um, priority list have been diversity, and not just gender diversity, but geographic, age, backgrounds, racial, uh, religious diversity. We need to ensure that our 
international arbitration community reflects the community of users and contributors. And if we don't, we're out of sync. And we need to be in sync. And so there's a lot of work still to be done with that. And uh, I'm really happy, as a member of the ICC court, <laughs> I'm really happy that with the um, Claudia Salmon coming into the presidency, also launching the um, LGBTQ initiative Absolutely. and also the disability, that that's also part of the diversity, that we need to ensure that our space and what we're doing invites all of those who are interested and can contribute in meaningful ways. And if we leave them out, we're damaging our own best interests. So I think that's a, to me, that's a really continuing important topic. Well, I agree. And I think um, maybe going exactly to that point is that, that unfortunately, what you even have started to hear over the last year and a half, couple of years, especially has been you know, there's this quote, quote unquote, uh, diversity fatigue is people that are tired of hearing about it. They think they understand it, think they have a diversity plan when I, I think actually the opposite is true. I think we're just starting to understand what exactly we mean and what we're talking about when we say diversity, equity and inclusion and what that looks like and how that affects our bottom lines and how we can meaningfully go about moving the needle on all of those topics. Yeah, definitely. And there's so many ways that we can do it. And uh, and I feel privileged that I get to work with students. And so, you know, you should always start in your own home. And you should start with trying to encourage inclusion, open-mindedness, to, to try to get already in the, the, in the classroom environment for people to start to have those expectations and to engage. And there's all kinds of learning formats that can be used to help grow inclusion, which I think is also very deeply linked with empathy. And for, I can give you a practical example. If you start to have a group work projects and then you start to have peer review as part of that, those are shown empirically to help grow empathy. And they need to be curated. You, know, you don't just throw a bunch of students together and then just expect <laughs> them to battle it out. It needs to be something which is in the design. But those kinds of activities can really help. And I've seen it in the master program. I've seen students coming together, kind of looking at each other in the classroom, coming from very different backgrounds, from all different ways. And by the end of working together in the year, you see that they have been bridging this, learning to understand how the other person thinks, approaches problems, coming up and evaluating solutions, being able to develop lasting friendships, or even if they don't like the person, respect. Sure. Just respect. Respect. Respect and if and like you said, I think understanding at least the other side's perspective, um, because you don't necessarily have to like that person to understand where they're coming from or agree with it. Yeah, exactly. who is it? Uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, right. Dearly departed. Yeah, real hero. You know, I love her whole quote. You know, you you don't have to be disagreeable to disagree. Exactly. No, I think that's well said and that that's well put. Um, you know, I think. Another thing that comes to mind is that, you know, every year, <laughs> really since um, in its own way, uh, especially in 2020, we've had some pretty cata um, cataclysmic world changing events that have been occurring um, in the background. I wonder 
um, for someone that you know has been around the field for as long as you have, and that is now working as an arbitrator and does things with legal developments around across the globe, what are some of the things that you're seeing or that that, that come to mind most? Um, as changes in the field over the last several years, if there's anything that does come to mind. You mean within arbitration practice? Right, within yeah. arbitration practice, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, I think that we're start we're starting to see, hopefully, I hope we are, that we're starting to see that we need to have new ways of approaching what we're doing outside counsel and, and being able to not just attack each case with the same cookie cutter approach and not doing it of trying to maximize how um, many different procedural (laughs) activities you can get in i mean there's still there's still a lot of that going on and i think that needs to be addressed more i think now i sound like i'm doing a promo for icc and i have relationships and with many arbitral institutions but since it just came out a few days ago the icc commission reports where they actually made two um, which is very much centered on having a more user focus and a full toolbox approach, like looking at how can we actually try to achieve the commercial objectives of those who are using arbitration by helping to anticipate and prevent disputes in the management of the contract, being able to identify them early, try to resolve them, you know, when they're still pretty low-hanging fruit before they grow into bigger problems. So I think we all need to work on it more because there is a tendency for us to just want to go back and keep doing it the way we've always done it. And, of course, there's always this fear that outside counsel has is that maybe we're going to miss something. And then if it doesn't come out right, they're going to say, why didn't you check that box? Or why didn't you do that? That goes into the diversity, too in arbitrator appointment, but we need to um, engage in more dialogue with the clients and we need to be more open to rethinking about how we go about doing what we're doing. Well, that's right. And um, and this is something I think uh, a lot of in-house counsel would agree with is that um, a, a protracted win is just as bad as a quick loss. Uh, which is to say, you know, businesses thrive on predictability, certainty, reliability, all of those types of things. Because without those, um, you, you don't have an operation to run. You just have, um, you know, lawsuits that are miring the business and the things that you want to do day to day. Yeah, and it increases the cost. Absolutely. And if it increases the cost, then there are some winners in that. <laughs> sure. They're, they're decidedly so, at least uh, two sets of winners that aren't necessarily the clients. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and if we want to have a better world, and I hope that most of us actually do want to live in a better world where there's more prosperity, where there are more opportunities, crossing borders, where we have a building a bigger pie to share, then we need to think about the way that we do this. And I see that now I'm about to, before before the um, the Russian major invasion, not the 2014, but the more recent invasion into Ukraine, I've been working on a USAID project in Ukraine for a couple of years on commercial dispute resolution. That project pivoted to addressing other more pressing needs, but we're about to ramp it up again. And part in in the big part that's motivated because um, there's going to be a lot of rebuilding. There's already a lot of um, uh, capital flowing in and resources flowing in and for different types of rebuilding. But there's a huge need for risk mitigation accountability, and to make sure that the money that's coming in from donors and from businesses 
is actually going to what it's supposed to go to and that it is helping to reinvigorate not just the transnational companies coming in, but the local business partners. Right. And, and again, the accountability and the risk mitigation, we as dispute lawyers have an important role to play in that and we need to kind of think out of the box and think how can we do this in a way that's going to ensure transparency, rule of law, and to be able for it to be successful rebuilding. It's going to be a huge challenge because there's all kinds of opportunities in that environment for things not to work. That's absolutely right. Um, for the opportunities for bad actors to come in or you know, for greedy um, folks to come in and try and siphon the money off from getting to the people um, that need that support. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this is directly tied to it, um, but one of the things that I know um, that I, I recall you have been having been involved with over the last couple of years, um, starting with the invasion from last year, was um, assistance to Ukrainian law students um, in particular. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I believe it was a safe harbor or maybe the harbor initiative. Um, if, I, I don't want to get the name incorrect, um, but could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's safe safe harbor for. Uh, UA Moody's was its official title. And what that came from is, um, like many, I felt very uh, frustrated and, and un- distressed about what was going on and wanting to feel like I could do more than simply um, send some money to Red Cross, which, of course, that's important, too. Sure. And I thought, what can I do? And at the same time, because of my involvement with the Vsmoot, we were dealing with issues about the Ukraine teams, which were now trying to stay as teammates, trying to practice and do pre-moots out of uh, bunkers, um, with not access to internet and all these challenges. And that made me think, well, you can't save everybody, but you can maybe help somebody. And I thought I reached out to Swedish arbitration law firms through a um, network we have in, in Sweden and asked if they might be willing to help um, a, a Ukraine Moody, because then we know that they can work in English, they can write in English, they already have displayed an interest in international activities and doing extracurricular, thinking bigger, so that they would be, and it's a limited target group. So I asked if they might be interested in having an intern in their office for three months. This is at the very start of the war. We didn't know what was happening. We knew that the Russian troops were moving towards Kiev at that time. And so we could get them to safety and get them to a place where they could continue their dream to become lawyers. So I was thinking, (laughs) maybe we get five or six. And the Swedish law firm stepped up and did it. And then I quickly realized that this ad hoc solution where I would try to find housing and try to arrange for a stipend for them to live on. And the internship was tough. Yeah, just real easy stuff. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we shift. And so the first great move I made was connecting with Alicia, uh, I said, Yes. It was a Polish lawyer based in, in uh, Berlin. And I knew she had good contacts to the Ukrainian students and asked if she would like to uh, partner with me. And she was all in. And so we got the German firms in. We even got uh, Mike, 
Yeah, right. Yeah, Mr. McElrath, sure. Yeah. Yeah, in Florence. And the firms were great, and so we and we shifted everything to them. So we acted more of a like a service to connect, and we had a couple of um, Ukrainian young lawyers that were based in uh, Moody's and Moody Coaches, based in London, who helped us with all the contacts, as well as one in Vilnius. And so we started as just... <laughs> When I think of we started sending emails out to um, Moody's based in different parts of Ukraine saying, um, we'd like to help you. Would you be willing to? Are you interested? And you can imagine some of these, you know, 19, 20 year old girls because we couldn't get the guys out. We got one male. Right. And you can imagine when they would say to their parents, I've been contacted by email from this guy named Sasha in London and this Patricia and Alicia who said that, that if I cross the border, that they will help me. Yes. <laughs> That's really jumping off a cliff. We realized we needed to try to also engage with families to let them know who we were, what we we're doing, have the law firm send a formal letter saying that they would be responsible. But uh, we really just jumped into the pool. We felt it was urgent to try to help these young people. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, last season, we had um, some of the Ukrainian MOOC students on the show um, and just their stories of, A, how they were still managing to participate and prepare for the moot, B, uh, supporting their countries and their, their families that were still back in Ukraine or for those that were in Ukraine still, um, and then C, uh, you know, whatever I might have to say in a sports context about the University of Georgia, the Georgia School of Law stepping up and offering um, scholarships to students in, the, in a similar vein, um, you know, was just uh, mind blowing um, and humbling and thinking about what we all can do, even if we can't be, you know, on the, the, the front lines helping in some other capacity. Yeah, it's been great. And the, again, the lawyers, they get the eloge. And um, they've been really great at stepping up and helping. And there's so many people who have contributed in different law schools and such. So and it's, it, it's one of the most worthwhile, meaningful things I've ever done. I have been so privileged to get to know these brave young students who, despite everything, still have their dreams and are still really working to achieve them. Absolutely. No, um, I, I, I've told many people, anyone that has talked to me about that episode, I've told them that I mean, it was inspiring for me as someone that's, you know, just um, if a bit further down the road than some of these students are. And, um, you know, just, again, humbling and inspiring all at once. Um, you know, it, it was great to be involved, even to some limited capacity. Um, you know, shifting focus just a bit, and it's one of the things that, that we've mentioned a couple of times, you know, the vis and the moot. Um, certainly, we, we, we couldn't let you get out of the studio without talking at least a little bit about the vis moot. Um, so let, let, let's start with the same thing that we talked about um, when walking through your legal career. Um, how did you first get involved with the vis, and, um, and how did you uh, deepen your ties with them over the years? Well, I've always liked Moody. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for students. And it's fun for the coaches. Yeah, yeah, fun and fun and stressful. Yes, fun and stressful. Yes, yeah, you're almost more stressed in the room, and you're thinking, "Yes, give that answer. I know you know it." Like you know, you know there's always a moment, and my students this year especially will know. Um, there is always a moment that happens. I think for every coach, where you hear a question, and you're like, "Lord, we have practiced the answer to this question so many times." If you do not say this answer, you're just looking at them, and either you will laugh about it or you'll high five about it later. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great, and it's such a it 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 is such a. I know everyone says it, but it truly is. It's transformative. It's life changing, and it's 
not only for the students, but for the coaches and for the arbitrators that come and arbitrate. I think that they can see that they're contributing to this. And it's amazing. The 30, uh, the 35th anniversary, uh, and now we are back after COVID, which was now in April. Then we had a special dinner for the arbitrators because they're never all brought together. <laughs> right. And so they had in the, in the big, um, uh, what do you call city hall, you yes. can call it. And, and Chris got up, one of the directors, Christopher Key, and he calculated just roughly, if you take all those years, and even though it started with 11 teams and now up to over 400 in Vienna and another 100 plus in Hong Kong, that's over 40,000 students. Wow. Over 40,000. And it must be at least 10,000 arbitrators and coaches. So more than 50,000 people whose lives have been touched by the visa. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was uh, mind-boggling to me when, when and at the opening ceremonies this year, we had the first, and I'll, I'll say, yeah, the first head of state um, that has been a former Moody. That was, again, sort of getting a six degrees of separation sort of um, effect through the VIS. Yeah, no, it's really, it's, it's a, a fantastic opportunity for students. Any mooding is good. I, you know, there are many other mooting um, opportunities. And I've coached, for example, the European Law Moot Court for many years and, and did coaching did moots in the U.S. The thing that makes the visa a little special is, one, because the problem is really got a lot of facts in it. And you have, yes. You have to really work through. So you have to learn how to read the problem. You have to learn how to analyze it, identify issues, start to generate different solutions, and then to evaluate them. And then you really have to work and all the time be saying, yes, but if we go here, what about that? Creating decision trees, looking at it from both claimant and respondent, responding to a memo, a real memo. So it's much more realistic than some of the moots, which tend to be a more of a legal issue discussion. That's not to say the moot doesn't engage in current legal issues. It does. But they're much more embedded in the in the fictional fact base and, and because it's such a long process. That's right. I mean, I remember it um, must have been several years ago now, there was a problem having to do with turbines and water treatment and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and I, I was thinking, I was like, all right, is Kroll, has he like seen one of my cases? Like this is almost carbon coffee, you know, what, what, what we were dealing with at the time. So that was um, really interesting. And, and yeah, I mean, when we, the students that we were working with, then I was saying, look, you know, these are one-to-one -one examples. I mean, this is a very real conversation. This is not just theoretical. Yeah, exactly. And Stefan is Stefan Kroll. He's really good at coming up with uh, with problems. And before him, it was Eric Bergsten for many, many years. But Stefan has been doing the pro problem for the last several years, maybe a decade. And um, he gets inspired by some of his own cases. And then he works closely with the arbitral institution whose rules are being used that year. And so that they work together as to what kind of issues are coming up. And the products tend to be what are the goods they usually have some kind of connection with the home base of the arbitral institution so when it was camp ccbc it had to do with the uh, airplane engine fans sure, yeah. there's a big aeronautic industry there and people always ask about the frozen horse serum <laughs> yes. that was hong kong rules and yes a lot of horse racing and horse breeding so you can usually find the wine cases coming out of New Zealand or uh, chocolate from Switzerland. Yes, right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. So what's it going to be this year with ICC rules? Oh, right, <laughs> yes. Foreshadowing. What, what did folks at home think the options could be? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, uh, 
I, I'm cognizant that as we uh, sit here and talk, have this conversation, Patricia, um, you mentioned uh, Dr. Bergstein that just um, unfortunately passed away um, recently, um, I think sometime within the last week or so. Um, I wonder, you, you know, you are obviously embedded uh, with the moot, um, both over the years and then um, going forward um, with the new position that you'll be taking up. Um, I wonder, um, with with Eric's passing, um, do you have any thoughts or or anything that you'd like to share um, just in light of that scenario? Well, Eric is enormous legacy, an enormous legacy. And um, the visa is going to continue in his vision, in his spirit, and carrying on his legacy. Um, already about a decade or so ago, he realized that he was sitting 80 and he was getting older and decided that perhaps the V should be put into more of an organization, hence the V-Smoot organization, and that the role of operating it was then given to three people, Patricia Natal, Stefan Kroll, and Christopher Key. And then Eric was still the president, and there was a nonprofit Austrian organization of Verein with some limited institutional members. And I was on the Verein um, during those years, representing Stockholm University. And so that the process of carrying on the organization was already well developed and carrying forward um, the the Vs. So with his loss, it is a huge loss. We deeply, deeply miss him. But thanks to how well he developed it and thanks to the the last 10 years of continuing the process, the best thing I can do as president is not to disrupt anything. There's going to be no disruptive change going on. We're going to allow the people, we have good administrative office with Brigitte and with Theo, and they'll keep doing their things. The directors will keep doing their things. And I see my goal is just to back them up and to carry forward the vision and the legacy of Eric. Well, I think that's well said. And that kind of anticipates uh, the next question I was going to have is that, um, you know, during your tenure as president, what do you look forward to? or What are some things that you would like to accomplish? Well, one of the things that was cool was during COVID, how quickly we transferred, even quicker than the practicing arbitration yes. community, because it was a very short period of time from um, when COVID hit that it was in spring and then to suddenly transform Hong Kong and Vienna into a remote event with teams all over the world. That's right. And so the shift was, I mean, we're really, people are worried all the time about AI and what's going to happen and chat GPT. We have proven that we are quite capable of adapting to new situations. And I think the arbitration community will adapt. So going back to your question, I think that we're going to see adaptation. The one of the benefits of the remote is we saw so many new teams coming out of areas that have not been as active, Southeast Asia, the African, uh, Middle East, and they were able then, teams that were underfunded, more challenged with resources, teams that didn't have huge institutional memories and funding and coaches and libraries were able to get on board. The challenge that we're going to face is how can we keep that inclusion? How can we manage to continue to keep these teams that don't have those resources? Because we need them. Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, and look, you know, I, I definitely appreciative 
that uh, the teams that you've just described are in a different boat than uh, my two teams out of Charleston and South Carolina. But they definitely do fall in that category to some extent of, you know, schools that weren't previously involved, that don't have huge libraries or even really curriculum about international arbitration. But, I mean, that's that's true in a lot of places. And if it just goes back to like, oh, well, now it's back in person, so we're not going to do it anymore, then that sort of that certainly undercuts the whole purpose. And those jurisdictions still lag behind best practices. Yeah, and I hope that if you have any people who are listening who are in positions that they can encourage their law firms or organizations to help contribute to the mood to um, actively do that and get those organizations and, and firms and, and associations to realize how important the mood is to the development of the arbitration community generally, to young talent that's going to be entering in and becoming part of this. And if they can support in different ways, come to Vienna and be an arbitrator. Join join it. And I think you, you can't help but get excited by seeing how important this is. Because you're right, um, especially after COVID, many of the budget shrunk. And when the budgets were no longer aligned on the budget during the COVID years, it's hard to re- get it back up again. And it's uh, many universities and, and even in places like the U.S. and Canada and other are facing budgetary issues now. And so um, we need all the help we can to help support teams that are challenged with resources to be able to participate. And it's almost impossible, given the type of mood that this is, to do a hybrid. Absolutely. No, I mean, it just would create a completely different experience. And um, one of the the pitches that myself and my co-coaches in the Carolinas made to the legal community there, to the academic community there, was that, you know, approximately half of the value of the competition is going and being there in Vienna and meeting those people and and mooting in person. You know, those things cannot be replicated by just um, doing a competition that's online or virtual. Exactly. And it's uh, even it, it, it it's very important to the whole experience. It, it really is. It really brings the whole experience together and makes people realize that the journey was the point. Not actually be in Vienna, but the journey. But without that point, it's hard to get people motivated to do the journey because it's a lot of hard work. It's not easy to transform your life and your profession. It's it's not. And um and the students and I can appreciate this cuz I'm a competitive person too. You know, you know, uh you know, if they don't have the results they want, you know, they're like, "Oh, well, why do we do this or what's the point?" And and you know, and you all, and you have to tell them, you know, it's a competition because it has to be, not because it needs to be. Um I think that those words um from the the organizers is always well said. Um and 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 and, and, and invariably, you know, we've only been recently involved, but you know, students do tend to, tend to appreciate that once they get a, a week or two away from, you know, the intensity of Vienna. Yeah, and it's so cool. Whether you're a law student in South Carolina or in South Sudan, coming to Vienna and seeing that you're part of this and you're just as welcome as anyone and being able to learn from the more um, the teams that maybe have more coaching and more resources and they have got more practice sessions. And you're just as valuable as they are and you meet them and you can be have just as strong arguments all of that is so important and again knowing that that everyone is part of this wherever they come from and if you're just working from home remotely you don't get that sense that's true that's true um and that's coming from someone that is a big believer in working remotely and working from home sometimes you just need to be there you just have to be there and there's no replication for that um Okay. Well, look, um, we're going to shift one more time um, as we get ready. You know, our time is uh, is running past. 
you know, a question that comes to mind, Patricia, is I wonder, you know, you've had, as you talked about, um, many phases of your career, a lot of things that you've done. Who have been some of the guiding forces or maybe some of the influences on your career that come to mind when you think about um, who's pushed your career in various directions? Anyone that comes to mind or anything that comes to mind? Well, as I said, I'm not intentional. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's difficult for me to say, um, to, to identify. I can say in, in the context of the arbitration world, I've, I've, I've um, been really blessed to have a lot of people who have supported me and inspired me and invited me to things. Um, a couple that stand out are Julian Liu and George Berman. And um, I shouldn't name names because then there are many that are going to feel left out. Um, and if it, and the biggest inspiration, I know this sounds corny, but it's true, are the students. And, and, they, and, and what's really cool is when I see the students become colleagues and see them contributing in whatever way. Maybe they're not practicing in international arbitration, but they have become valuable professionals in other areas. I can think of one, um, one student that um, went on after she left us, a student originally from Uganda that did a uh, LLM at, at Harvard, and then she came to, to Stockholm. And um, a couple years ago, Evelyn was um, made, she went to work at the UN, working oh, wow. with the food food security issues and came up with some cool things that she worked on. Now she's working uh, with a uh, big international, I'm trying to think, um, it doesn't come to mind right now. <laughs> but she was um, named one of the um, uh, Fortune, is it? No. The Forbes. 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 30 under 30. Oh, wow. That's a big honor. Thir- 30 under 30. And I'm like, wow, that's really big. Yeah. And she, she left us and she went to work on food security and now working in other kinds of development. What a success. Or you can become a judge. You can go back to your German city and become a judge and be doing good things in that and helping to promote you know, commercial development or whatever it is. Maybe you're in family law. Well, that's absolutely true. And, um, and that's one of the things that I tell the students is that they would be surprised how many judges sometimes have literally never heard of the CISG and never applied it and you know are surprised when you start saying, Your Honor, no disrespect. I know you got the UCC. There's this thing called the Convention for the International Sale of Goods that actually uh, uh, supersedes that authority. So, you know, you're absolutely right. They can take that back to their jurisdictions and and, and teach their communities. Yeah. And I can share uh, about a year ago, a little bit more, I um, was visiting Eric Bergson. So I um, sat and chatted with him for about three hours because I, even though uh, through email, um, it was, uh, he was on board with me becoming. The, the new president. I wanted to sit and actually talk to him about his his visions, his background. We had a great conversation, and he asked me in that, you know, some people say that it gets kind of old with the CISG. We have the same kind of issues that go around, you know, is it a lack of conformity? Is it, you know, whatever. And, you know, what do you think, Patricia? Do you, th- do you think we should keep playing with the CISG, or is it time now? And I said, yes, because people who maybe tell you that are maybe people who've been doing the the, the V's for 20 years. Yes. But every year we have a new crop of students, and most of them have never encountered the CISG, or if they did, it was a very small amount. And when they go out and practice, this could become something very important. And even if you don't think of the CISG as having intrinsic value because you're going to go practice in another area in finance or oil and gas or whatever, 
the fact that you're working with an international instrument that has to be embedded and applied into national law and through arbitration in and of itself is really valuable because you need to have that kind of an instrument. So he was happy to hear that the CISG sure, sure. is part of the VEAS and should stay. No, agreed, agreed. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, okay, let's let's go right along. These are some of my favorite questions I like to, to end the in conversations with. Um, what's on your bookshelf? What are you reading right now? You know, I just started listening to books. Okay, and fair. I just, fair. I do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I just finished uh, Viola Davis' book, oh. Finding Me. Oh, so inspiring! And I followed it up with one I just started. That if you're looking to be entertained while you're standing in a line or driving a car or boring flight, James McBride, The Color of Water. It is so well. It goes chapter to chapter between his mother and his childhood experiences and the ability of the different voices and making this it's heartwarming, sometimes entertaining, sometimes you know, showing the underbelly of some of the bad parts, at least of American society. Great. Put that high on the list. James McBride. Okay, okay. And I appreciate the the tip of the cap to my fellow South Carolinian Viola Davis. So, you know, yeah. well done, well done. Um, okay, yeah, Color of Water and um, and Finding Me. Okay. Yeah. And the book I'm reading, I do read. I yes. love to read. I just started, so I haven't gotten very far. Um, I like historical books, Histor- and historical fiction, but this is a true historical one called The Wager, about in the mid-1700s, a British ship that was set out to go to take over a Spanish uh, uh, ship, steal steal and plunder, ends up with um, an event which has been much discussed and was the result of many hearings and trials and things. So... It's got good reviews, looks to be interesting. I'll be learning a lot about some new things that I don't know anything about. And that's what I like in a book. Interesting, yes. No, I have a, a long queue in my audiobook collection. I'm looking forward to catching up on some of those this summer. Um, how about music? What, what kind of music are you into? Some of your favorite genres, artists, anything like that? Uh, I love music. I can't make it. Yeah. I can't replicate. My, my kindergarten report card shows that I couldn't match tones, and I still can't. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but I like all kinds of music. I like, uh, my husband loves to play um, guitar and sings a lot of songs from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. So I hear that a lot. Jazz too. Mm-hmm. He, he plays a lot of piano and jazz. My son has got a second career as a disc jockey. Okay. He just came home last night from Paris where he was disc jockeying in a club doing electronic music that he creates. I can even take that for a little while. Okay, no, very on brand. I mean, Paris DJ yeah. electronic music, yeah. uh, very daft punk, right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. classical music. Okay. I love going to the opera. Yeah, yeah, listening to the Brandeby, you know. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, well, good, good. Um, another question I, I like to ask folks: um, Let's say you were approached by. I'm a recent graduate or maybe a, a more junior practitioner that's looking to make a transition into international dispute resolution. I mean, they come to you and ask, uh, you know, what should they do to, to really make their, their footprint or break into the field? What, what, what advice would you give them? I usually first ask them, why? Why are you on this path? And why are you continuing to go down? And I can give you all the cookie cutter things that are told what you should do if you want to check the boxes to now move up the ladder. But ask yourself first, why? What makes you happy? 
What will give you a life that you think is worth really living and enjoying? And then from that, take your take your paths of where you want to go. Because of course, you know, you publish some blogs, you try to get an internship, you try to you get in you get an associate position, you try to network a bit. Um, sometimes I think it's a little bit too much. I'm really, um, and I don't think I'm alone, starting to get a little tired of it. I'm so honored and privileged to have been asked to. <laughs> yes. I am honored and privileged to be on your Tales of the Tribunal. Oh, you're making me I, blush. I, oh, oh, I, goodness. This is a real conversation between two people who are interested in talking. Well, that's right. And look, and that's, you know, folks that have been with the show, um, you know, for the, about the five years that we've been doing it, that's always been the goal is to have these real conversations. Um, so I think that that's great advice. Um, you know, not focusing on just moving up, but focusing on why you want to move up and why you want to pursue this field. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I once shared a panel with you and talking about this very career thing. And I loved one of your, one of your sayings, and that was, you said, you know, somehow I always seem to get a lot luckier when I'm working really hard. <laughs> no, that, that's true. Um, and, you know, that, that sounds like, you know, some, the sort of self-help, you know, feel-good stuff, but it's true. I mean, that's something um, that has served me well, um, as we were talking about before the show, in my clarinet-playing days, um, in athletics, and, and anything that, you know, at some point, if you're certain that this is the path you want to be on, you know why you want to be there, you've got a motivating reason, you know, uh, put your head down, get the work, and continue to work, and you, the luck will find you. Yeah, and, and the old adage, be careful when you're climbing up the ladder, you might be meeting those people again. Yeah. Um, I t- tried to raise my children and myself with saying, they almost always I have regretted those times when I have reacted to something with being angry or being kind of snarky or bitchy or whatever. And I have almost never regretted the times I have reacted to things with kindness and generosity. No, I think that's absolutely well said. Um, If you're listening, rewind 10 seconds, listen to that part again. That's a good good one. That's a good one. Um, You know, last couple of questions here. So you mentioned it earlier in one of your answers about uh, the impact potentially of AI um, and on the practice of law and arbitration, all those things. Do you think this that people are kind of you know saying the sky is falling, like there's not really much to worry about, or or is there something to all this AI revolution? Maybe it's somewhere in between. Yeah, I think it is a big moment. You know, they talk about the invention of the internet, the industrial revolution. I mean, this is a big moment. I mean, and, and so it would be foolish to say anything other than that. And. Uh, as most studies show that lawyers are going to be very effective because we're very text-based, and even though AI is now moving to become more, obviously there's mathematical algorithms underneath of it, but to be moving into other areas as well. So, of course, it's a big moment. Um, but I'm not frightened that we're not going to be able to manage it. You know, We need to address it. We need to be aware. We need to learn more about it. And I think we can adapt to making it become more useful. And we need to ensure that as we go forward, the people who are displaced by it in jobs have opportunities to find other kinds of retraining or to take their experience in being able to funnel it into others. And it's an obligation, I think, of... Of us in the law field, whether you're in-house or educator or a law firm, that we need to be mindful that we need to be sure that we're constantly giving opportunities and training and encouraging the people who are part of our organization to be able to develop their skills and be able to develop their horizons so that they are well adapted and not just get a, uh, sorry, we don't need you anymore. No, I think that that's well said. That's um, 
I've been asking every guest um, towards the end of our time together what they think the impact of AI will be, and I'm just I'm, I'm curious. I'm interested. Uh, it's it's really fascinating. Um, last question. Um, let's say that it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. Um, no work obligations. You know, you can snap your fingers, be wherever you want, do whatever you like. How would you spend your ideal weekend? Oh, I mean, like it is like a fantasy world, right? <laughs> I'd call up a group of friends that I haven't seen for a while because I've been so busy yes. and say, let's all go get together. You know, let's all meet someplace. If it's sunny out, we can go meet at some outdoor place near the water so we can see the glistening water. They can come to my house, you know, and we can open up some wine or have coffees or whatever you want. Let's just get together and make some music. Um, I'm good at being, I'm the CEO. Okay. Chief Entertainment Officer. Okay. I don't make it. I just cheer it on and get together and just talk and just have fun together, make some food and relax. That would be my dream. That sounds like a fantastic weekend. That's a, that's a good one. Uh, I think that's a novel one too. Um, so uh, the, the, the truly, truly uh, last question here is any – any shout outs, any uh, tips of the cap, waves you want to give to you've, – you've given a few throughout our conversation. Um, and look, you know, it, if you if your name – you feel like your name should have been mentioned and it's not mentioned right now, that's because of me. I cut it. Don't blame Patricia. Any, <laughs> any, any shout outs you want to give? Oh, uh, no. I, there's so many people I'd have to shout out for. And again, I know I've said it already and I say it all the time. It's the students. It's the students. They're the ones who, who, who make what I do – worthwhile no that's understand understandable and that that's fair shout out to all the students um and well look uh i think like i've given the shout outs that i've had during the show so i'm not i'm not going to add on to that um and well look patricia our time has jumped by skipped by as it always does um thank you so much for coming by thank you i really enjoyed it enjoyed it too and uh do you want to sign us off and I should sign us off, and I should say that this is not in dispute. This is Tales from the Tribunal. Great. Thank you. And we will see y'all next time. So, there you have it, folks. Between last week's episode with Alex and the conversation you've just heard, we carry plenty of interest, excitement, and momentum into the second half of the season and our summer break. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I certainly did. But before we bid you adieu, we are filling out our roster for the final guests of season five. So if you have any recommendations or suggestions for who we should be talking to or anything that we should cover in the show, please let us know and drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. On that note, and as always, if you're enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to leave us a review or comment, or even share the show with a friend or colleague. We're knocking at the door of 30,000 downloads on our main podcasting platform, and doing these kind of things helps others find the show and helps us grow. Finally, listeners, Team TOT, thank you so much for all that you do. I mean that. Whether it's listening to the show, your comments, email, or private messages, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on these weekly dives, and I look forward to bringing you more content and continuing to grow the show. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Have a great summer. And until next time, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality.
None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved. Thank you.